It's a new track today. I'm pretty excited about it. If you haven't yet, you should go over to SoundCloud and search up Air Tindy Beats. Leroy Tindy is a young creative engineer who does some awesome things with beats and you should go check them out. Um, Leroy has, who is a guest from episode zero and uh, has also created music for this podcast since its inception. Shout out to Leroy. I'm pretty excited about the episode. We're talking to a dude named Kevin McClosh. Um, I'll, I'll let him introduce himself. But before I do that, it's been a little while since I asked uh, for your help. Uh, guess what? It's time. Wherever you downloaded No Such Thing podcast, if you could do me a huge favor and head back there, rate the show, review the show. It is a huge help to keeping it going. Um, also check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash no such thing podcast. There's lots of good info. The, the, um, I release episodes there first. Um, I also am trying to get a better sense of who you are as a listener. So check out the listener survey. It's a pin post on that page. Here's Kevin. Okay. Uh, hi, my name's Kevin Miklosh. I've worked in and around the fields of game design, education, science, and data research for several years. Uh, and I'm excited to talk about some ideas about cross-applying game design principles into education and pedagogy. He's got a free seminar coming up. There's going to be a link in the show notes. Here's the description from the seminar from EdChat Interactive. Although reward structures have generally been successful in games, the types of rewards used in education have had mixed success. Are rewards like badges or micro-credentials a poor fit to education, or are we just doing something wrong in how we use them? Also, what about the rewards we already use in education, like grades, GPAs, and diplomas? Kevin offers that idea in general. Games have used well-designed, meaningful, intrinsic reward structures, while education systems have often used poorly designed, not meaningful, extrinsic reward structures. Without dissecting and addressing the reasons for this discrepancy, attempts to revolutionize education system in a game-based manner are doomed to failure, especially as we switch to a more digital, remote learning world. That's world. How we design learning in the digital space, which is typically filled with reward structures, becomes especially important. There really isn't a better way to describe what we're about to talk about than to give you the description for the chat next week. It's October 8th, 2020, is the live chat from edchatinteractive.org. If you want to check that out, links will be in the show notes. You can also find a recording there after the fact. Uh, I am guessing you will enjoy it live, recorded, whatever's easy for you. Last thing, if you're designing your own reward system for remote or digital learning of any kind, come find me on Twitter at MA Lesser and tell me about it. I would love to hear more about what you've been up to these last couple months. Enjoy this. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. I don't want to start with uh, with rewards and um, get into games just yet. I want to talk about your background. Um, you and I have worked together for a long time now, um, or at least known each other for a long time. 
you have a background in in pretty straight ahead um, science, and I've always been really intrigued. I know the story of how you um, sort of arrived into um, what you contribute through your work, but um, I think people will be really fascinated to know sort of what that kind of crooked line looked like. And and uh, so tell us about your background and and uh, give us a little sense of the journey that sort of led you to this, this book and all that we're going to talk about today. Sure, yeah. Um... I did start out as a scientist. I was in a biophysics lab, um, which is is really the start of the story. I didn't settle on one field of science. I was <laughs> combining two together, biology, physics, engineering. And I've always had kind of a ADD-like uh, interest in different things. And so I have kind of jumped around to things that were always felt connected to me, but end up in different fields. So I, throughout my PhD, I was really interested in education. I spent a lot of time volunteering with different after-school organizations. Uh, found a real passion there and ended up working with one of those groups, Iridescent, which is now known as Technovation, um, after my PhD, where I was able to apply the science knowledge in an education setting, do a lot of science and engineering um, education. I developed curriculum. I taught myself. Uh, I taught kids myself. I also mentored uh, professional scientists and engineers and helped them adapt their research interests to um, curriculum and lesson plans. And um, started to get into uh, design too. We built out an online platform to connect mentors to students, and I, I helped design and develop that platform. It was around this point that I started um, both missing the research I did in my PhD and wanted to find a way to kind of keep doing that, as well as uh, realize that one of those big levers in education was assessment. And I started thinking about how, you know, you could make the best learning activity that existed, but the standardized tests kind of ruled all to some extent. And so I wanted to think about both applying my research and data skills and thinking about assessment, which led me to uh, my current position at BrainPop, where I uh, led the ideas of assessment, data, and efficacy um, throughout uh, different ways in BrainPop, whether it's developing assessment products, running product improvement data analyses, um, whether it's um, thinking about um, uh, how these map onto game design, um, I've I've been involved in growing and developing a data team at BrainPop and thinking about those issues further. A common link through all of that is uh, an interest in in game in game design. I've been a lifelong gamer. Mm. I've been a game designer for about um, seven or eight years now, and I've I've also been running game jams for youth for. I believe a, a, a similar amount of time. And I've thought about both how game design, um, how I could use games as a way to teach science, how game design could impact the way we went about education, and also lately about how game can influence, games and game design can influence how we think about assessment or um, through an idea of playful assessments, which I've been talking about more recently. A lot of that kind of got synthesized in this book, which is called Intrinsic Rewards in Games and Learning, be published very soon. Um, which thinks about how the way that games have used rewards can be mapped onto assessments. Uh, if we think about schools, assessments are really the rewards of the education environments. And a lot of games have the structure of choose a level, complete the level, get a reward. And that's fundamentally similar to the structure of school. Get an assignment, complete the assignment, get an assessment, um, a grade um, or a score. 
Yeah, we don't often think about assessments as a designed element of learning experiences. We think about them as this thing that must exist in order for us to know what students learn. And that, that I think is a little wrong-minded in a few ways. You know, whether, on, on one hand, uh, it's kind of uh, naive to think that assessment doesn't affect learning even as is. When we have high-stakes assessment, it affects how students approach their learning, the kind of motivation they have towards that learning, which can affect what they retain or what they choose to study or focus on. But additionally, maybe we shouldn't be trying to separate assessment from learning. If we think about assessment as something that is a part of the learning experience, just as you know, reward structures are part of a game design experience. You know, game designers don't say, I'm gonna make my game and then let me think about where the rewards fit in. They're just interrelated to the mm. game itself in many cases. That kind of thinking I think is what we should be using for assessments in the learning environment. Um, and so a lot of this book is about, I, I offer this idea that in games, we have well-designed, meaningful, intrinsic rewards, whereas in education, we have poorly designed, meaningless, extrinsic rewards. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the book is talking, unpacking that statement, basically, talking about what that means taking parallels from games and thinking about how they can be cross-applied into education. We happen to be in this moment where everyone is suddenly refocused on what it is um, digital learning affords um, versus what things it might, um, it might fall short on. Um, and I think one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation so badly is because I think that uh, reward systems in uh, learning environments are are one of those that once we get past the 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 sort of you and I have talked about it in the past as as um, the sort of the trauma of this pandemic and everybody kind of moving into ha having to sort of share the experience of moving into a totally different world of their practice. And how do I replicate some of what I was doing in the classroom digitally? Um, I think that intrinsic rewards is one of those that when we get to the next chapter, which is, okay, we're, we're comfortable now with at least delivering things somewhat differently. Um, now let's get critical about what things are working and what aren't. Um, I think this conversation is so important to how people start to think about what comes next. So, um, but I want to unpack a little bit of what you just described. For example, um, just, just, I try to um, take some of the jargon and put it into practical um, terms. So you use the, the, phrase intrinsic motivator and extrinsic motivator. And I think that needs a little bit of explaining. But um, but to do that, my question is um, to just have you describe a game um, from your own experience, one that has a successful intrinsic reward system, um, you know, one, one where learning designers might emulate that um, versus uh, you know what you're describing as a as one that doesn't work and a sort of extrinsic system that either motivates or doesn't, uh, but either way doesn't work in tandem with the experience you're trying to uh, put in front of learners. You know, I, I'll just mention first of all that like I've been working on this book for five years now, and I've been thinking a lot about what it means to publish it now in this time. Yeah, um, as a lot of things are shifting to digital. 
And a, a large part of the book does talk about how rewards in various forms have existed throughout history for literally thousands of years in digital and non-digital forms. And at the same time, it is the recent video game industry that has really run wild with this idea of intrinsic rewards and really just innovated that space tremendously. Um, a game that I would emulate. Well, I always like going to the RPG genre because I think that's the, the one of the original originators of the really classic intrinsic reward loop. Um, I'm not going to go to Final Fantasy, which is where I usually start. I'm going to go to The World Ends With You, which is a really fantastic game for those who haven't played it. Um, there's a few things I like about it. So for, it has for those who might not know what an RPG is, role-playing game is 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 where we're the sort of genre we're talking about. Yeah. So the, the basic behind the, the role-playing game genre is you fight monsters to get experience and gold to go up levels and buy strong equipment in order to become even stronger, to fight stronger monsters that will give you even more levels and experience to go up even more uh, levels to get even stronger and the loop just kind of keeps cycling and this that that structure where where when you say why am i doing this action and you end up on well to do this action more or better or differently that's that intrinsic reward loop so a, a teacher who entered the classroom 10 years ago maybe was experiencing or learning learning um from their students about world of warcraft um Mm -hmm. which would be an example right um, sure. now they might be talking with their students about Fortnite, which, um, my own son is obsessed with. Um, so can continue. I just want to give people as much sort of, um, relatable context as possible. Yeah. And I do go to some more obscure 1980s games <laughs> because I love seeing, I love seeing where things originated right. and that's, that's where a lot of these structures, that's where a lot of genres first originated in the video game industry. But yeah, those would be modern examples. Um, the world ends with you is interesting because it has that basic white monsters to get experience to go up levels, but there's a lot of agency embedded throughout that experience in really interesting ways. Um, you can you have these pins which give you actions, um, and you can choose which set of pins you want to bring into a battle. And the pins can level up as well as your own character leveling up. And certain pins are just kind of acknowledged as being easier or more difficult than others. And so you can kind of set the difficulty of your character through what you choose. Additionally, there's a difficulty meter in the game where you can say, I want to play at above my experience level. I think I'm so good at this game, I can defeat monsters that you're telling me I shouldn't be able to defeat yet. And if you play it above your experience level successfully, you'll get even more rewards as a result of those battles than you would have gotten before. So you can kind of play with the the difficulty you're going to challenge yourself with, which then feeds into rewards, which cycle through the loop even faster than you would if you had chosen an easier difficulty. Mm. And I think that that principle of giving agency over the difficulty or what's sometimes called the freedom to fail, to basically say, I want to make it more likely that I'll fail is really interesting. Um, the freedom to fail, when is, can you think of the first time that you heard that phrase? Um, was it games related or was it an education? It was games related. It was in the game-based learning world. So I guess a mix of both. Um, I remember hearing it from Scott Osterweil and I, I, to reference him greatly in the book is his four freedoms of play. One of which is the freedom to fail. Um, I don't know if that was the first place I heard it though. So Scott Osterweil, 
Um, motivation is such a holy grail for education. And in that, if you can find a way to tap into it, um, your success potential as an educator changes so significantly. Um, and so tell us a little bit about whether you feel like rewards can be a motivator, um, or are they an element in a motivating environment? So in this, one of the things that I've never quite been able to wrap my head around is I know that there's been some interesting motivation research that talks about um, how we move motivation from extrinsic to intrinsic, how that can sort of evolve over time. Um, I'm just curious to hear from you how you think about it. Um, you know, so I'll repeat the question. Um, sure. Can rewards be a motivator or are they an element in a motivating environment? I think they're. I think they're both. Um, one phrase that I use a lot is um, whether you're using a reward is far less important than how you're using the reward. Um, and no reward can be thought of on its own. I think of two aspects of that. One is the design of the reward matters a lot, and two is the context that the reward's being used in matters a lot. And so I, I, I think the answer is just yes. <laughs> it's not one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, the design. That the reward can be designed to be a good motivator, and it can also be effective as a motivator depending on the the environment, what I interpret as the context it's being used in. Um, I mean, when uh, you mentioned also the the moving from extrinsic motivators to intrinsic motivators is one framing people put around the rewards literature, and I actually think that's a that's the wrong frame to think about things, mm. and I think that's because everyone's operated in the space of extrinsic rewards. And when I say extrinsic rewards, I don't mean rewards that extrinsically motivate. I mean rewards that have an extrinsic structure to do this to get that. And the do this to get that structure, the reward is something separate from the action. And when that's your framing, there is a lot of parallels between extrinsic motivation. If you're being motivated by a something separate from the action by a that, it's often thought that, you know, you then need to use that to create interest, then move to an intrinsic place. And I'm like, games have circumvented that. They have intrinsic reward loops. They, when you when you get the reward, they just point you right back to the action. And I think that's a a much more effective way to potentially build intrinsic motivation towards a task. And I don't have any direct research, I think, to back that up at this point. But I I don't think I think having the framing of well, games use rewards in a way that's separate from how we've conceived and thought of and conceptualized them in our research literature is where we should start. And then we should realize that most of the studies done on rewards have actually been on extrinsic rewards, not intrinsic rewards. When we start there, we start to understand, well, actually, the way that intrinsic rewards work might be totally different and totally separate from that classic model of the extrinsic to intrinsic motivation. Hmm. Meaning, meaning that um, um, uh, you just said a lot there, and and I would be um, lying to say that I completely followed uh, every piece of it. But let me let me share back what I heard. Um, 
First, I heard that there's a difference between an extrinsic motivator and an extrinsic reward structure. Yes. And I, that extrinsic reward structure is me trying to speak as a designer. What's the design structure of the reward? Mm-hmm. What's not the, the psychological intent? So what's an example of an extrinsic reward structure that people might recognize? Well, I'll just offer um, a classic letter grade that you get on an assignment in school um, is a classic extrinsic reward structure, a trophy you might get for um, uh, participating in a sports league would be an extrinsic reward structure. Right. As opposed to an extrinsic motivator. Yes. Give me an example of an extrinsic motivator as opposed to an extrinsic structure. It's a hard word to say a lot of times fast. I know. Um, and I, I realized there's a tendency to, con- to, to join those things together. And I thought about using different words, but I, I wanted to engage with the idea a bit um, too. Yeah. So um, let me give you an example of an extrinsic reward structure that might foster intrinsic motivation. Nice. Will that help? And, and how about an intrinsic reward structure that fosters extrinsic motivation? How about those two examples? You, yes, you might blow my mind. <laughs> so an extrinsic reward structure, let's say that um, I, I think about hobbies a lot as um, things that might that can fit into this paradigm. And so let's say you're um, a photographer mm-hmm. and you want to take pictures and that getting that picture in a picture frame is your reward for engaging with the hobby of photography. If you're engaging with photography in order to take pictures, in order to be, let's say, reminded of your family when you're at work, Mm -hmm. that fits into the, that's something that fits into our intrinsic motivation structure by self-determination theory, which is one of the theories of psychology that's about intrinsic motivation. Relatedness is one of the needs that can be satisfied and is an intrinsic need, intrinsically motivating need. Being connected to your family and reminded of them at at your job would be an example of a um, intrinsically motivating but extrinsic reward. On the other hand, let's say photography is a hobby and you take pictures of your family to get better at portraits so that you can be a better portrait photographer so you can take even better portraits and hopefully get into an even more professional career. Now there's a bit of an intrinsic reward structure going on in that same activity um, in the way that you as a photographer might be perceiving that. So if I was to give you an example of an intrinsic reward structure that is extrinsically motivating, Mm -hmm. um, one of the examples I love to go to is Farmville. Yes. Um, (laughs) Just one of those games that a lot of game designers kind of like complain about um, because you cycle through this loop of you, you have a farm and you plant things to kind of gain money or currency to be able to plant more things to gain more currency. And it has a clear intrinsic reward loop. You're cycling around and around and around, but that action you're cycling around is essentially waiting for things to grow. <laughs> and there's nothing really intrinsically motivating or satisfying about that activity. Right. Whereas, um, compare that, so while we're just sort of casual gaming that people might be familiar with, um, relate that to like a a Bejeweled or a Tetris or a Candy Crush. Hmm. 
So Tetris is a great example um, because that is a really great intrinsic reward structure. You're playing through levels in Tetris in order to advance up higher levels so that the game gets harder, so you can play at an even harder level and advance up even more. As you cycle through this loop, the game gets harder and it becomes more difficult to progress. Mm -hmm. And so there's this nicely um, intrinsic reward loop that also can foster that intrinsic need of competence, of getting better and better at the game. And so it can be also intrinsically motivating to engage in that loop. Mm -hmm. Candy Crush is another great example because that's one where as you play through the game, um, the levels don't necessarily get progressively more difficult as you go along. And so you, there, there is a general loop in that you need to beat levels in order to unlock more levels to beat more levels, but the levels aren't necessarily getting harder. In fact, they often will, will throw in a really challenging level out of sequence and make sure the, the combination of items you get makes it hard to beat that level uh -huh. to frustrate you and try to get you to pay to advance through that level. And so they use that intrinsic reward to create a motivation to pay out of frustration and to engage in a psychologically satisfying experience of intrinsic motivation. So, so my question from it is, you know, an, an educator who's listening to this or, or even a game designer who's listening to this, I think that, um, I think that one of the daunting things about reward systems is that people tend to think that, um, they need to find the right way to do it, right? Like, like there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And I think that one of the things that keeps people from experimenting and thinking about reward systems and these loops that um, can work more effectively for their students or their environment that they're, that they're constructing or designing um, is you know, it kind of comes back to the fear of fear of failure. It'll be too hard to assess whether or not uh, my reward system is uh, working. Um, maybe they're afraid that it just sort of costs too much to experiment with reward systems. So we fall back to um, what people know and what they know the sort of minimum, um, <laughs> you know, minimum expectation is, which is, uh, you know, we in education, we fall back to grades and, and transcripts that are inadequate in a lot of ways. So my question for you is, when you look at this subject area and this, you know, considering from the, from the vantage point of somebody who just spent five years writing a book about it, is there a right way to do it? Or would you encourage an educator or learning designer to look at it differently than that? So what I would say is there's not one right way to do it. And I don't think we've discovered all the right ways to do it yet, but there are some discovered wrong ways to do it. Right. And um, I, I spend uh, some of the later chapters of the book, both talking about some case studies of some people that have done some really creative, interesting things in their classroom, as well as offering some very quick principles on what to avoid, what to promote. Um, but it's hard to do it in schools because you're, you're experimenting with one of the fundamental components of the school structure. Um, one of the case studies I talk about is Lee Sheldon, who wrote a great book called The Multiplayer Classroom. Um, and it's a, an exploration of what he had done in his college level setting to incorporate more game-based elements into his classes. Mm -hmm. um, and he has several case studies from educators across the 
K to higher ed spectrum. When I heard him talk, um, I, he, he did this thing where he used the classic RPG structure, where he said, you know what? Start of the class, you all have zero points. As you complete assignments, I'll give you grades and you'll gain points. As you gain points, um, once you get to this level, you'll have a D. Once you get to this level, you have a C. Once you get to this level, you have a B. And once you get to this level, you have an A. What's amazing about this system is that this is not fundamentally different from how a normal class works. He was still giving students assignments. He was still grading them. They were still on a point scale. And he was basically adding it up rather than averaging it to a letter grade. Mm. But the grade at the end would exactly be the same. The problem that he noted when he gave a talk about this they ran into was uh, when he had to report mid-semester grades to his college grading system. Every student was supposed to have an F at this point. <laughs> the college did not accept that every student in his class had an F. So we had to make up or project every student's potential grades into his college like midterm grade that he oh, had to deliver. And that broke the kind of like magic circle he was creating around this experience. And so um, definitely experiment. You're going to have to, uh, this experimentation has to get buy-in and bandwidth from your administrators because you're going to do things that are going to, they're going to break like how report cards work potentially. Right. Or <laughs> how how your grade book works or how your LMS works. Those are the things you need to experiment with. Whoa, nice. Um, so so I, I love that. And I'm going to link to, um, to Lee Sheldon's uh, work um, so that people can can read more about it. So, so you said, I want to come back to the thing you said, which was, I do think that there are wrong ways to do it. Um, give, you know, so for, let's let's pretend that I'm an educator who is has been you know by some force of nature um, forced to work in uh, you know more virtual slash digital environments in the coming semester. Um, what do I need to know about the wrong ways to do it so that I don't replicate that? Yeah, good question. Um, so I spent a large part of the book offering this ten part. Um, taxonomy that you can break every reward into. And I tried to do that so that there was something very concrete that you could use and categorize each of your awards into and then start to think about what does it mean to be on this end of the spectrum and that end of that spectrum. So with that, um, you know, one thing I think about a lot is fixed first growth mindsets as one thing you might want to avoid or promote. Um, one of the spectrums is between completion-based and measurement-based rewards. Um, which is really important for thinking about fixed first growth mindset. A completion-based reward is basically something that once you've completed something, you have the reward. Measurement-based one is once you complete it, you get a measurement of how well you did on that activity. Um, so one's more like binary, the other one's more a scale. Um, this dimension is interesting because uh, feedback is good and feedback's important and measurement-based rewards have a greater potential to give feedback but being judgmental or being controlling is often negative in terms of motivation and um, also fixed mindsets. And measurement-based rewards can feel a bit judgmental often. And they kind of lay out what is good and what is not good and they tell you where you are on it. Um, so one thing that you might want to avoid or, or think about is when you have measurement-based rewards, I think you want to be careful about how you use them. Some of the the worst potential measurement-based rewards to use are ones that are permanent. 
um, permanent versus temporary is another dimension. Because now you can think of, you might have this judgmental reward, and when it's permanent, it's now a permanent judgment of your ability. Mm. That's really fixed mindset inducing. On the other hand, if you have a measurement-based reward, but it's temporary, um, then it feels more like temporary feedback on what you've done that can be changed with another iteration. Um, one way to think about this in school is allow resubmission of papers. And then each grade, grades are measurement-based rewards, is a temporary grade on how well you did on that attempt. It's not a measurement of how smart you are based on this artifact you deliver. Um, and so uh, if you're going to use a measurement-based reward, thinking about how temporary or permanent it is is one dimension. The other direction to go is to say, well, you know what? Um, if you're going to use permanent rewards, then make sure they have sort of a level or progression potentially are in some kind of intrinsic reward loop that as somebody goes through it, they they advance up, kind of like Lee Sheldon's system that we described. As you complete more assignments, your grade goes up. Um, your number of points that you have goes up. That feels, conveys the sense of growth rather than this kind of temporary judgment. Mm. And so creating something that has a, a leveling, a progression, whether in an intrinsic reward structure or not, can be a really great way to foster growth mindsets. I can keep going on, but maybe that's maybe I'll stop there and see if there's if you have any reactions to that. Let's do let's do one or two more um, examples of of sort of no go, um, or just sort of paradigms to keep in mind um, that mm -hmm. I think are really helpful. One other uh, combination of dimensions that I think has been particularly problematic, and this this basically describes the, the uh, basic letter grade that you would give in response to a normal assignment in a class mm -hmm. is a discrete measurement-based permanent reward. Discrete measurement-based permanent reward. Okay, go. With, yeah, and so the discrete um, is on a dimension with leveled. And so discrete means you have a reward or you don't have it. Leveled means there's multiple levels of the reward you can achieve. Uh, a discrete measurement-based reward is like you get a grade. It's one grade, but it has a measurement of your progress. Um, there are discrete measurement-based rewards in other fields, but they are never permanent. Hmm. Uh, no game, actually, this is not just true for games, but in all of the other contexts where I've tried to investigate rewards, I've not found any examples of discrete measurement-based permanent rewards except in education where they're the most common reward. Hmm. Um, it, it again leads to that sort of judgmental fixed mindset inducing paradigm. Um, so one thing that happens is you might have discrete measurement-based rewards. DDR is a great example of this, Dance Dance Revolution. You mm -hmm. play a song, you get a letter grade on how well you played the song. It's temporary. You play the song again, you get a new letter grade. The temporary measure of how well you did right then and there. Hmm. Um, another way that this is broken is um, discrete completion-based rewards that are permanent. The Boy Scouts is a great example. Um, so you might lay out some criteria you need to achieve, and then once you've achieved that criteria, you can get that thing, but you just complete it. It's a yes or no, and then you find the next um, badge that you're going to work towards and complete. Hmm. Um, so that's another way to break that paradigm. Let's talk about that very quickly. Um, I think that people, you know, you talked a little bit about Lee Sheldon 
you talked about um so the multiplayer classroom um and i think that that one of the one of the ways that some of these reward structures are um, manifesting themselves in the last 10 years um, is around credentials and badging. Um, and so while it's important in some ways to keep keep those conversations, um, it, it like it really can muddy the waters to um, conflate some of these things. But rather than conflating it, I was I'm hoping that we can sort of bring to light some of the principles that of reward systems that we're talking about that that do relate um, to to badges or credentials um, that might be being used in in a platform. Uh, you know, you you may be using a platform right now to teach a class um, that has these kinds of, um, you know, badges or credentials that can come with it. Um, what do we want to avoid um, when we're thinking about a badger credentialing system in the 21st century context where it's loaded with um, data and hopefully a, some sort of like performative assessment and, um, you know, what are the things that merely replicate some of the um, discrete permanent measurement based mistakes we've made in the past and how can we sort of push past some of that yeah um, badges and micro credentials i think are a great step in the right direction and i'd say competency-based education as a whole is definitely stepping in what i see as a positive direction but i also want to point out if you're if you're an educator you don't need to jump into a OBI compliant badge system or a giant system of micro credentials there, you can take um, steps to get in that design taxonomy without actually using that um, entire structure that comes with it. Yeah. Um, one of the examples I talk about is Paul Darvasi, who um, ran a, for a section in his class, turned his class into the um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest um, book, basically. And he had students basically um, on a point system, kind of similar to Lee Sheldon's, where they needed to get to 100 points to pass out of this uh, crazy pervasive game that they were thrown in. Mm -hmm. um, and he had what looked like mostly normal assignments. So kids could request prescriptions, which were usually um, things they had to do in his media literacy class. They had either make like podcasts or videos or things like that in order to talk about the book. Um, but what he did is he said, you know what, you e they're worth a certain number of points and you either pass or you don't pass. And if you don't pass, you know, you can resubmit it back to me, but um, it goes back to you. So I'm not going to give you a letter grade. He, all he did was he flipped from measurement to completion base and he said, you have an A or you don't. Mm -hmm. If you don't have an A, resubmit. So it's temporary too. Um, you can do that without taking on a whole uh, badging system. That's a very quick change. You can use the same assignments. You can use the same criteria. You're just switching it into A or not A. Um, and I think that that on its own can offer a lot of value. The one thing he did in a larger level that made that work is he had more than enough assignments for each student to do. So, you know, I think one rule of thumb for maybe doing this well, if you want to go a step further, is have two to three times as many rewards available for students to get as they can possibly get mm -hmm. to allow them some choice and agency in figuring out which ones they want to complete. And this is, again, kind of what the Boy Scouts does with all of their badges. And so um, 
I think one thing to avoid to bring this back to your question is we can use badges, but if we're simply keeping the same structure we already have, um, having students go through an assignment, get a grade, no matter where they are, be pushed on to the next assignment and then get the next grade, and then just occasionally awarding a badge when they get an A on something, it's, it's, it's just a layer laid on top of it. We're not changing the underlying system. And so I, I worry sometimes that when we say we're going to use badges or we say we're going to use micro-credentials, we're just adding another layer of assessment rather than changing the layer that already exists into a competency-based model, for instance. Mm. Um, and so I want to I want to kind of like say there's lots of small ways to move towards that without doing the whole thing. And also sometimes doing the whole thing can be done wrong if you're not integrating it into that structure of assessment. Right. Um, you can hear you can hear the voice of um, somebody listening to this, thinking or, or sort of like casting this conversation into. Uh, wow, this is this all sounds like gamification. I know about gamification. I have one question, which is like, has has the term gamification done more harm than good? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure the answer to that for from my own my own opinion. Do you have an opinion on that? I have I have thoughts about this. I don't have an opinion on that question. <laughs> I, I took a framing when I thought about rewards and I said, you know what, I'm just gonna be super inclusive with this. It's really hard to draw the line between what is and is not a reward, where gamification ends and where true reward structures exist. I'm like, you taught me uh, you heard me talk about photography and producing a photograph in a frame as a type of reward. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think there are a lot of senses where these everyday things can be conceptualized as rewards. And, and so for me, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about gamification here. Um, and I was strongly influ influenced by a way that Scott Nicholson talked about this idea. Um, and he said, you know, a lot of us hear gamification and it's a term often co-opted by, you know, marketing or salespeople to make very, um, what I, uh, you know, we often call not really great systems. Um, he says, you know what? I do gamification. I do meaningful gamification. Mm. And that's one of the reasons I use the word meaningful versus meaningless in my book. Cause he said, you know what? If you say, you know, I don't do gamification. I do this other thing. You kind of acknowledge that it exists and it might have some place, but you don't engage with it. Mm. And when you say, you know what? I do meaningful gamification. You immediately imply that there's a way to do this thing well and not do it well. And that's the conversation you want people to be thinking about. Um, and so like, I think it's more productive to stop drawing this line between gamification and game-based learning or well-designed reward systems. And just like, let's talk about what's good design. Let's talk about what's meaningful. Mm. There's some people that use the word gamification and they're doing great things. There's some people that use the word game-based learning and they're not doing great th things. Let's, let's talk about what's good or bad about these things. Um, and that's what I, I really wanted to talk to you about and really get into in this book. Let's. Let's stop avoiding, avoiding, let's start avoiding these categorical terms and talk, start talking about meaningful and meaningless design principles. Yeah. Um, but to sum it up, I think the classic gamification systems are also a little harmful too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to say gamification is harmful doesn't tell us why they're bad, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think I think um, so. So it's been a while since I I uh, talked about this. Um, the whole 
the premise for this show um, and its title, No Such Thing, is is really about um, deconstructing some of these ideas that um, some some you know as a field I think or as fields um, too often we arrive at a conclusion um, that things are a panacea or um, or aren't um, in the case of gamification you know the the premise of no such thing is that there's really no such thing as a panacea and and um, and what's important about the conversation is that we're talking about what's meaningful and what's not um, and and really getting under the hood of that so um, good good segue to help me remind folks of why we have this goofy uh, title for this podcast and and uh, in case people haven't haven't gotten it so far tell me a little bit about you have an upcoming you're you're doing a talk um, that is open one of the things I have found to be an absolute bright spot in our our current moment as we all live through this this pandemic is that there's a lot more that is being made available to us through the web um, than maybe previously. So, you know, a lot of them in the way of free conferences and, and um, you know, things that, that uh, just sat behind a paywall previously. And, and uh, you had to ask for, um, you know, a budget for, from your employer. So, so you have a free and, and open talk coming up. Tell us about it and, and, um, and what you are going to cover. Yes, I have a talk coming up on EdChat Interactive with uh, Mitch Weisberg, which I'm excited to really get into. Um, I'm going to show a lot of a lot of what we talked about here, but um, with um, some of the visuals, I think can kind of help drive what's an intrinsic reward. I'll talk about that taxonomy in depth. What are the different elements of the taxonomy? What do they mean? And then how do they apply to different examples, either through history or through some of the best practices? So it's it's a summary of a few key parts of the book. I also mentioned the book itself is published with ETC Press. Um, anything that goes through them, they're an open source publisher. There'll be a free edition of the book available for download as a PDF, or you can buy the uh, physical copy um, at some cost. So it, it's there's multiple ways in which these ideas are going to be freely available for others to engage with. And I, I really just want to get these ideas out there as much as possible and have people from research to education to design settings, thinking, talking about this and um, being thoughtful about the design of their systems and not just the, the what of their systems. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to leave a link to EdChat Interactive and the um, there's how digital learning can use game-like rewards to improve engagement as the talk. I'm going to leave that link in the show notes. I'm also going to link um, to the book, Intrinsic Rewards in Games and Learning, um, from ETS. Um, I, one of the coolest things that we have not talked about yet, but but maybe you can give us a little preview or, or a taste of, um, while people are preparing their um, fingers to, to click and go find uh, the book um, from ETS, is that you know these things are um, in some cases reward systems. You you got to do some fun research on kind of the history of these systems, and and I think it's really neat that you found a lot of these systems that go back a really long time. Um, what are some of your favorite um, nuggets about what you dug up in terms of the history of rewards? 
Yeah, it was really fun to do some of these deep dives. Um, one of the oldest ones I love talking about is the system of Go ranks. Um, Go is one of the oldest board games and has actually had a pretty well-developed um, reward system called ranks around that. Um, it looks like the earliest form of it has been traced to 280 in China, and the modern form is developed in the 1600s in Japan and kind of mimics the, the black belt system um, in martial arts, which is another example of a reward system. Um, I think it's also one of the earliest examples of a really nice intrinsic reward structure. Um, you really advance through the Go ranks in order to play the game better and advance up even more ranks. Um, and so it has a, a really interesting loop for being so old. Um, I, I also looked in the food industry, which has a lot of interesting rewards. Um, the Michelin Guide and the Michelin Star System has been one of the more fascinating examples. Mm. Um, that dates to the early 1900s. Uh, was developed by the Michelin Tire Company as a way to evaluate restaurants that would be worth taking a trip to in your car that had Michelin tires on it. Isn't it um, interesting? Yeah. Um, that is not an intrinsic reward, but it is a really interesting extrinsic reward. Um, one of the fun facts I learned about that was that, uh, so restaurants can get a star um, and then they can get between one and three stars. So it's a discrete measurement-based reward. Um, they actually limit the number of stars that are available in any country at any given point in time. So there's a huge amount of scarcity to it, which also means if they want to uh, award a star to a new restaurant, they have to take it away from another restaurant. Wow. Um, and so there's this implied scarcity that gives the reward this kind of mystic appeal and um, also makes it really expensive to maintain and constantly <laughs> taste test restaurants. And it's been fascinating to dive in how that system has developed over time. Um, do you feel like the food industry nets out positive from the Michelin reward system? Or do you think it does more harm than good? This is a good example for us to explore. Yeah, you know, I, I try to always say that um, there's not like one best reward. <laughs> the right. purpose you're designing a reward for determines what's the best design for it. Right. And their, their purpose was to figure out what the best restaurants were. And having a highly competitive, scarce, measurement-based reward achieve that goal well. There's a really fascinating moth story by, um, I believe it's the, the head chef for Momofuku. Uh-huh. And... Um, you know, we talked about how discrete measurement-based rewards can feel very judgmental and hard to deal with. And this moth story just drives point that home, that drives that point home so clearly. Um, so it, it might be a great way for consumers to find good restaurants, but it clearly wrecks havoc on the psyches of chefs that are competing for it. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. Um Oh, there's so much there. So it's, it's really, uh, that's an interesting example. Um, and the, the one you mentioned previously is one that I've been fascinated with for a long time. Um, I used to work with a developer who is now a, a friend and who I talk with um, from time to time. And he is uh, a, a many degrees black belt um, in Aikido. Um, and, uh, I've always been really fascinated by the, the martial arts as an exemplar to, to sort of deconstruct how, um, it works that, you know, it's a, it's, um, it really does work on these 
these cycles of motivation that really, really seem endless. I mean, you can be working on the degrees of, of brown and black belts for a lifetime, um, which is, you know, it's um, it's fascinating to come back to in part because where you started was with hobby, right? And and so like um, the it, it, I'm I'm stuttering because um, usually that's what happens to me when a bunch of different ideas connect in my mind, and I have I have trouble processing all at once, but. <laughs> It, it comes back to hobbies, right? And I'm thinking of my, so I'm a fisherman. I've, I've been um, a fisher since I was a kid. And uh, as a teenager, I started fly fishing. And fly fishing, for anybody who does it, is is an obsession that um, anyone will tell you is is a thing that, that builds on itself over time. And you'll be uh, you know, I will be a 70 year old, hopefully if, if, uh, all goes well, I'll be a 70 something year old, um, uh, waver of a stick on a stream someplace and, and still feel like a beginner in, in many ways. Um, and that's what to me makes it a really successful hobby is, is I kind of, um, I know that I'm on a, on a continuum. Um, I'm, constantly reminded of why I'm engaged in this continuum. And I don't really care if I ever um, reach some like godlike status. Um, what is the pleasure of it for me is the pursuit and, and, uh, and what I'm doing at the time. So it, you know, it's interesting because it comes full circle. And when I would have these conversations with uh, my friend, Seth, um, uh, it, it kind of came back to that. Um, and I guess it begs the, you know, it just begs the question of whether to what extent we can contrive that, right? Like we, people get engaged for different reasons. People get motivated for different reasons. To what extent in learning content, which is not, not a, is a hard thing to build motivation around. Um, to what extent does it, is it going to be engaging or not? And, and to what extent are good reward systems a factor in how engaging we can make them? Um, that was a long meandering um, question. So, so I'll come, I'll co I do want to come back to it because I want to get your thoughts on it. The question is, um, if I think of myself as a fisher, I know that um, no matter what, there is something intrinsic that makes me want to keep doing it. And most of it happens in the moment of doing it. Um, so the question is, do well-designed reward systems add um, to whether or not learning can be engaging. Um, obviously much to explore in terms of research, but, but how do you, at this moment in your, um, in your tenure as a professional in, in this space and having seen the environments that you have, um, to what extent do you think it matters? Yeah. I love the fishing example, but let me ask you a question. Why do you fish? You fish to catch fish? Um, no, 
you you fished to engage in the act of fishing. I fished to engage in the act of fishing, but if I didn't catch a fish every once in a while, <laughs> my my um there's a part of my motivation that would change, which is the um uh in a in a very Buddhist sense, it's a practice. Like you ha- you have to continually get out there and practice. And a fish once in a while motivates coming out for the practice. Um, you know, the way that in meditation, maybe a little bit of insight or a little bit of calm um, is great motivation to continue your practice. Um, so I think I think the motivation would definitely change if there weren't fish involved. But I don't do it because. Um, because I want big fish. Many do. That's just me. Um, so but- that, that statement to me encompasses the idea behind thinking about intrinsic rewards. Because fishing is something that has such a clear reward, right? You fish so you get that fish so you can eat. But you're fishing for the act of being able to fish more. That, that intrinsic reward is do this to do this more. And as you mentioned, it depends on the person. Some people want to catch that big fish. They fish to catch the big fish. Some people fish to fish more. And I think most people that are hobbyists for life in the way you just described often have an intrinsic reward loop that they're at least psychologically thinking about as they engage in that activity. Um, I think that's a just such a powerful, I'm glad you offered that. To tie this to education, I mean, you're a lifelong fisherman. Here's a question for you. Is the goal of education to produce lifelong learners? Yes. Yeah. So to me, the parallels there, intrinsic rewards produce lifelong fishermen. Why shouldn't they also be used to produce lifelong learners? I think that's a a fantastic, I would, I would know nothing about what I'm doing if I didn't know to end there. (laughs) Um, I think that's a fantastic place for us to wind up and until our next conversation. um, I want to have you back after you've gotten some, responses to the book and and um get a sense of how people are reacting to it um i am super excited to um have the show be a place where we can talk to people and get people's hands um on some of these ideas the book is intrinsic rewards in games and learning the upcoming talk will be um linked in the show notes along with many other uh references that uh, came up during this conversation there there are a lot of good reads that came out of this um, dialogue for anybody who hasn't dug into this topic kevin thank you so much for spending time with it thank you this was a lot of fun for more info about advertising with us sponsoring the show or if you have story ideas you want to share find me on twitter at ma lesser the tracks in this podcast were produced by leroy tindy a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. <laughs>